Amen. Please remain standing if you're able, and let's turn to Genesis once again. Genesis chapter 38. I believe that's page 32 in the Blue Bible. Genesis 38. Hear God's holy word. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adjulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me? so that you may come into me. He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat 
by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enayim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify who these whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread to his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. So Joseph uh, is not uh, prominent in this chapter. Um, This is sort of a little interruption in the Joseph narrative. Joseph, of course, at this point is a slave in Egypt in Potiphar's house. Not happy circumstances at all for him, but... Of course, God's providence was ordering it all. He had put Joseph in that position because it was all part of his divine plan to bring his promises to pass, his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Israel, the people of Israel, would be strangers in a strange land right there in Israel And they would be oppressed there for many years, yet at the same time they would multiply there and they would become a great nation during that time. And so through all these dark, painful circumstances, Joseph's circumstances and later Israel's difficult circumstances, God was working his good purposes out. That is what he does. He brings light out of darkness. He brings good out of evil. He does that in our lives as well. God doesn't just send us happiness and prosperity and comfort. We'd like that, but that isn't how God works, contrary to 
certain heretics in our day that uh, seem to preach that and only that. The true God does give us many good things, many blessings that he lavishes on his people. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from him, and we ought to give thanks to him for all those things. But he also gives us troubles and trials, tribulations, and yet he always means those things for good, and he uses them that way in our lives. And we see that over and over in Scripture, and we see it here in this uh, rated R passage that we've got before us today. The story briefly veers away from Joseph, but it doesn't veer away from the main character. Joseph isn't the main character in this story. The main character is God. Even though he's not mentioned here or seen in this uh, uh, chapter, in this narrative, he is there. And here in chapter 38, we see him at work, working in surprising ways, beautiful ways, wonderful ways. He works through his amazing, sovereign hand of providence, even overruling the sins of men to bring his promises to fulfillment for his people. Now, the story of Judah and Tamar is a, a, a sordid tale. It's, it's a, uh, not pretty, is it? Some people say it's not fit to be read in public that's not really true. Everything in God's inspired word is fit to be read and edifying for us. But it is true that God's word doesn't sugarcoat anything. And when it comes to the sins of men, it shows us uh, what we're really like. God is real and honest. His word is open and real about the sinfulness of man. And we see that here. God speaks the truth about our fallen condition. And that's not a bad thing. Because we need to hear that. We need to face that about ourselves. His word shows us uh, the guilt and the misery of sin. It shows us through that our need for his grace. And we shouldn't think that we would never fall into sins like this. We absolutely could. And it's only by God's grace if we don't. Well, in these opening verses, we see Judah's sin. And uh, it sounds vaguely familiar. Judah goes out and he finds a nice Canaanite girl to settle down with. That should sound familiar because that's exactly what Esau did. And we were reading about that not long ago. And this was forbidden. It's still forbidden uh, here in this passage when uh, Judah did it. God's people were not to intermarry with the Canaanites. Their false religion was absolutely wicked. Their lives were depraved. And so we see Judah not caring about that. We see Judah's bad character here. Now, sadly, that's kind of the story of Israel. Uh, many other Israelites would commit the same sin. They intermarried with the people of the land. And we still sadly see this, 
the same principle being violated in our day. People profess to be Christians, and then they go and marry someone who doesn't really even share their faith. This is a very terrible idea, and it is a sin against God and his word. You know, an unbeliever may be very appealing in different ways. That person might be attractive. They might be attracted to you, which is itself, of course, attractive. Uh, We want to be loved. But if that person does not love the Lord and doesn't trust in his son, well, then that person is ruled out for those who are believers. And we shouldn't minimize this or or overlook this rule of Scripture. It's very important. My advice to every Christian is to never settle for a person who doesn't know and love the Lord. It's so important that they do. Don't settle for, for, for less. Someone who doesn't love Jesus Christ and love the gospel Someone that you know will raise your children up in that way with that faith. Judah knew he shouldn't have done this, but he didn't care. And he's going to reap what he sows. And we will too if we commit the same sin. There's a generational reaping when you commit this sin. God says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And he says this for our good, for his glory, but for our good. Doing so would be spiritually devastating to you and to your family and to future generations. Well, Judah does it, and he he marries this Canaanite woman, and they have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And it seems the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Uh, These boys uh, follow in their father's footsteps. Judah is happy to arrange a marriage with Tamar for his firstborn, Ur. Tamar, also a Canaanite. But then we're told this man, Ur, was evil in the sight of the Lord, and God judged him. God took his life. God killed him. There's this spiritual decline happening in this family, and God's judgment falls on this man. We don't know what his wickedness was, what he was doing, but the Lord judged him. And now Tamar, his young wife, was a widow. Then we see the sin of son number two, Onan. Ur's death presented a problem, He was the firstborn, but he had no offspring. And the marriage laws said that if a man died without offspring, his brother was to marry that widow and produce an heir for the firstborn. So Judah said, we need to do this. He said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law and raise up offspring for your brother. Well, Onan married her, but he refused to give her a child. 
And this was selfish. He knew that child wouldn't be his. He knew that child would now be the heir. And he didn't want that because Onan himself would be the heir. He would gain the rights of the firstborn if there was no child for his older brother who had died. So that's why he didn't want to give Tamar a child. He wanted those rights of the firstborn. He was greedy. He was selfish. And we're told this was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death too. So now Judah has buried two of his sons, the firstborn and the secondborn, and Tamar's a widow for the second time and still childless. But now Judah, probably emotional over the loss of his sons, he starts to think that Tamar was the problem. Maybe Tamar is cursed or something. Maybe she's doing something to my sons. Two of his sons married her, and two were dead. And so he put her off. He didn't want to give his third son to her. He said, remain a widow in your father's house until my son is grown up. But the reality was he was afraid that he would die too. So he's, he's being deceptive with her, and he, he puts her aside. Sheila may have been too young to marry at that time. It seems he was, but... The truth was, Judah didn't want to give him to her. He didn't want him anywhere near Tamar because he thinks he'll die too. Now, that wasn't the reality at all. The reality was his sons, Ur and Onan, were wicked. And they were judged by God because of their evil. But Judah just blames Tamar instead. So he refused to do the right thing and give her his remaining son as a husband. You see what a mess this family situation is. The selfishness, the evil, the father not acknowledging the reality about his sons and probably not, real, not acknowledging the reality that he had not raised them well either. The chickens are coming home to roost. He's not a very godly man. He married these ungodly, this ungodly Canaanite woman, and now they have ungodly kids. This whole family is a terrible mess. and It really stands in stark contrast to what God is doing in Joseph. We'll see very soon what a very different kind of person Joseph is growing up to be. He's going to be so different from the rest of his brothers. I mean, it's like oil and water and light and darkness to see what Judah's like here compared to what Joseph's going to be like. Why was that? Well, God was forming Joseph to be a godly man from a young age. And that's what we all need him to do in our lives. We need him to form us and change us. We have such a great need for God's grace to change us. 
If we're left to ourselves, we would go in the same direction that Judah and his other brothers went, living selfish, evil lives without respect to God and what God's Word says. And we would decline spiritually from bad to worse, just like those brothers did. We need God's grace so much to intervene, to save us, and to put us on a different path, to put us on the path of righteousness. We need God to save us and sanctify us. Now look at verses 12 to 26 here. We see Tamar's plan. She realized she's been uh, set aside, just really uh, put on a shelf by Judah. Uh, He didn't want his son to have anything to do with her. He would have liked to have just forgotten about her, but she wasn't about to let that happen. Sometime later, when Judah's wife died, he was a widower. He goes through the time of war, uh, mourning, but after that time was over, it's time for his sheep to be sheared. So he uh, goes up to the area where they were, and there were sheep shearing festivities. And uh, in this land, the land of the Canaanites, they practiced fertility rituals in their wicked religion. And so Judah and his people and his property are all mingled in with these Canaanites, and uh, they're practicing their religion, and they've got cult prostitutes, temple prostitutes, the Canaanites do. And during this time of sheep shearing, these prostitutes apparently would be out selling their services. Well, Tamar learned that Judah had gone up for the sheep shearing to Timnah, and she got an idea. She knew what kind of man Judah was. She thought it likely, apparently, that he might be open to some female companionship. Maybe she knew that he engaged with prostitutes in the past. This might not have been the first time. In any case, she dressed up like a prostitute, and when he saw her, he fell for it. He couldn't see her face. He had no idea who it was. He just thought, this is a local prostitute, one of the cult prostitutes. So he approached her and propositioned her, and she slept with him. Sadly, this was, this was just normal life in Canaan among the Canaanites. This was a, a dark, immoral place. That was the world Judah and his brothers were living in. Derek Kidner writes, Such was the world into which Judah had married. He didn't just live in that place, he'd married into that life and that culture. The Old Testament prophets report its corrupting power over the people of Israel for generations to come. 
And that's what we see play out all through the Old Testament. That corrupting of Israel as they embrace the ways of the people of the land. This is is an ugly story. Why is it here? Why is it in Scripture? Well, Moses wrote these things by the Holy Spirit to show us the ugliness of sin. It's good for us to see that. It's good for us to be um, shocked by it, made aware of it, see the, the nastiness of it. When we make ungodly choices to unite ourselves together with ungodly people, the results are going to be bad. They're going to be terrible. And that's what we see happening here. Loving the world leads to worldly behavior, leads to spiritual poverty, and maybe to God's judgment, as we see in this passage. And it seems Judah has given himself over to worldliness. He's not at all concerned about making good, godly choices. He just makes ungodly choices without a thought. He just does what he wants. And we see in this passage what comes of that kind of life. It's a warning to us not to love the things of the world, not to get sucked into the dark world and its rebellious ways. This world is in rebellion against God and His Word. And we are immersed in that world, and we're in danger, uh, being tempted day by day to give ourselves over to that. We're tempted to just do what feels good, like Judah did, instead of believing what God says and being committed to obeying Him. But look at the results here. God wants us to see the results. You don't want to end up with results like this in your own life. You don't want to end up spiritually where Judah was. He's basically numb, dead to the things of God. His conscience seems to be seared. He's not even thinking twice about any of his actions. We need to guard our hearts. And we need to guard, yes, we need to guard the company we keep. It's good to uh, mingle with unbelievers at times, to be salt and light. We're supposed to do that. It's another thing when the influence goes the other direction and they are corrupting you instead of you influencing them for good. We want God to make us a blessing to the people around us, and may he do that. But may he keep us also from being ensnared by worldliness. But we see here then next how Tamar prevailed through this. She asked for a, for a payment, a pledge of payment for her services. Apparently, 
Uh, he wasn't able to pay her. He didn't have uh, the money, so he promised her a goat. But she asked for some assurance that he would come through with this promise of payment, that he would keep his word. So he said, what pledge should I give you? And she said, your signet and your cord and your staff. And these things were unique to him. They were things that would identify uh, him. And he agreed. He gave these things to her. And he slept with her. And we're told she became pregnant. And Judah sends his uh, friend back to try to find her with the goat, to try to pay her and collect his uh, items that he'd left with her, and the man couldn't find her. In fact, nobody had ever heard of her or seen her around that area. This worried Judah. Again, those items that she had could identify him, and, and uh, he didn't want to be laughed at by the locals, so he just decided to give up searching for her and hoped uh, uh, that it would all just be swept under the rug. It could all just be forgotten. And he seemed to forget it himself for a little while, but three months later, word spread that Tamar was pregnant. And here she was, a single woman and a widow. That was not good, especially in those days. And she was also technically betrothed to Sheila. So that made it adultery which was punishable by death. And finally, Judah, in an instant, saw his chance to get rid of her once and for all. And so he said, bring Tamar out and let her be burned. It's hard to imagine a father-in-law so callous, but as she was being led out, led out presumably to her death, she sent a message to Judah and said, I am pregnant by the man who owns these things. See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. That must have hit him like a lightning bolt. Suddenly he realized the truth, the undeniable truth. He had to admit that those things were his, and so was the baby in her womb. And he said, she is more righteous than I, since I would not give my son to her. Now, the Bible's not saying here that her act was righteous, that she was right in doing this. Judah's just recognizing his own sin. He's recognizing how rotten he has been. He's saying, I can hardly blame her for doing this because I was so rotten to her. He was humbled. He was convicted of his sin. He's publicly admitting his guilt. Isn't that beautiful? Judah was 
changed by this. And who knows how much he's been changed, but he's got a long way to go, no doubt. But this is a turning point in this man's life. He's growing. He's recognizing the evil that he had done. And this is the unseen hand of God that was at work in his life to bring about this change. God even took these dark, sinful, nasty circumstances and turned them around for good. And through it all, he's building his church. This is his church being built here in the Old Testament as he preserves his covenant line even through these people, through Judah and Tamar. That's the most glorious thing that we see here. This is a wonderful testimony to God's grace. Not only does God do a work in Judah's life, he's building up the people of Israel through this immoral mess, and he brings about astounding good for the whole world. Because the baby that comes into the world through Judah and Tamar is not the real baby we ought to have our eyes on in this story. Another baby is going to come into the world through this line, through this union of Judah and Tamar. And he is the baby who will bring light out of darkness. Let's take a look at Matthew 1, the genealogy. These unlikely parents in this sordid story became part of the genealogy of the Savior of the world. What a testimony to God's grace. Lastly, we see the story of Tamar's labor here. Time comes and she has twins. We're told that when she was in labor, one of them put out a hand and the midwife tied this scarlet thread to his hand, saying this one came out first, but no sooner had she done that, he pulled his hand back in and the other brother came out. And he was the firstborn. So it's a struggle in the womb here for these twin boys. And regardless of what the midwife thought when she tied that thread on Zira, it was Perez whom God had chosen to be the firstborn. So he also ends up appearing in our Savior's genealogy. What a story of God's grace this is. That's what this story is. With all the the sordid details, all the ugliness of it, all the shame of Judah, the foolishness of him to marry uh, outside of God's will, a Canaanite woman. But then we also see the beautiful determination of this Canaanite woman to bear the child of the promise. Now, her methods were not great, not exemplary. 
But in God's providence, she ended up finding her way into the lineage of King David, and more importantly, that of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Son of God, the Messiah. Just think of this. The Savior of the world has Canaanite blood flowing through his veins. If that's not God's grace, I don't know what is. Again and again, we see God taking what is evil, taking what is bad, and turning it around to his good purposes. From the cursed Canaanite people, he brings forth this blessing. He brings forth the salvation of all his people, Jews and non-Jews, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. What a gracious God we have. What an awesome God. He's so good. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we praise you for your amazing grace. And we thank you for, for even the warnings that we have in Scripture and this portion of your word. It is a, a fearful thing to read this passage, to read of your judgment, to read of how your people can become so dull and willing to just live in ungodly ways. Lord, give us a fear of living that way. Give us a fear of that kind of spiritual decline that can happen to us when we compromise with the world and with our own sinful desires. And help us, Lord, to learn what a great and, and sovereign and wise God you are. We see it here so beautifully. Your plans and your purposes are so good. And you bring them about, even through the most unlikely ways, even through evils, even when the worst things happen to us. You are working for good. What an encouragement this is to us to have you as our God and to worship you and to love you and to trust in you during those times of, of difficulty and hardship. Help us to do that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.